Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Gentlemen of the Hartford Convention. The chair recognizes Inpatience Wolf of Windsor. I rise to denounce President Madison. He's made a covenant with death, an express and open alliance with Napoleon Bonaparte, who will not rest until we are his vassals. Didn't you say that yesterday and the day before? Right, but today I want to say we are not going to eat French fries anymore. Only freedom fries. What are French fries? You cut up potatoes into little sticks, and then you deep fry them and put salt on them. They sound fabulous. Where do you get them? Well, they're new, so you have to ask around. Also, no more etch-a-sketch. Tis a French invention and a vile thing. What is an etch-a-sketch? No, etch-a-sketch. It's, it, it's really hard to describe. Maybe we're getting off track here. How about no more presidents from Virginia? Why are there so many of them? It's like there's only two states, Virginia and France. What about other states like Delaware, Vermont, and, and the Shire? How should we word our demand? How about all the Virginia presidents? What's up with that? What's up with that? Totally. I like it. It's different. Well, I don't know about you, but I am exhausted. We've been at this all morning. Time for happy hour. What is happy hour? My good man, that's where we put the ale back in federalism. There is no ale in federalism. There is now. Come on, it's five o'clock somewhere. Today on the show, a trip back in time to the Hartford Convention, a cluster of cranky Yankee federalists. We're live at the old state house. And now he drew the mustache on the George Washington portrait, Colin McEnroe. I did not either draw the mustache on the George Washington portrait. But as you might have heard uh, earlier, it, there is a legend anyway that um, a southern visitor came into this very room where we're sitting in the old state house in downtown Hartford uh, and looked at the Gilbert Stewart portrait of George Washington and said, his cheeks are still red, he's still blushing about what was said in this room, uh, because a lot of the things that were said in this room were things that George Washington would not have appreciated. Uh, so we're going to talk about that today, about the convention that happened um, right here, 1814, I believe it started on uh, December 15th, ran through January. I mean, they did Christmas shopping and stuff too. I mean, it wasn't just all work. Um, and we're, we're right where it happened. It, we're recreating it as historically as we possibly can. Uh, there was a risotto truck outside, just like in 1814. Uh, so many things ha have stayed the same. So but what is this thing, this 1814, this Hartford Convention? I, it's something actually that I grew up studying American history and not hearing anything about, and even if you got interested in Connecticut history. It might be a while before you heard uh, about the Hartford Convention. We're going to tell you about it. Uh, with us is Matt Warshauer. He is a professor of history at Central Connecticut State University and the co-chair of the Connecticut Civil War Commemoration Commission. I would say also that if you come to the old state house, you can get the uh, books of Matt Warshauer in their delightful gift shop where I just was. Uh, Walter Woodward is with us. He's an associate professor of history at, uh, the UConn, uh, at UConn and the Connecticut State historian. Together, Matt and Walt uh, are the bad boys of Connecticut history. 
Um, that's actually an endowed chair, I think. <laughs> ZZ Top has endowed that, actually. ZZ Top endowed uh, the bad boys of Connecticut history. Uh, Richard Kay is a senior member of the Yukon School of Law uh, and the author of The Glorious Revolution and the Continuity of Law. He's especially going to help us as we go along here. We're going to start with the historical reality of this convention, but this convention has deep implications, deep implications for what came later in terms of Southern secession and, and deep implications for how we understand uh, our government now, and also uh, far-ranging implications in terms of how we think about other kinds of secession, secessionist movements, whether it's the Quebecois or Catalonia or Scotland. Um, so there's a lot on the table here, but first of all, we do have to set the table. So uh, Matt Warshower, I'm going to start with you. I don't know if you can do a thumbnail of the 1814 convention, but uh, we had a bunch of really uh, irritated, deeply, vastly irritated New Englanders in here. What were they so irritated about? Okay, so here's, here's the thumbnail. Uh, it, it, you know, when we start out this nation, 13 colonies, 13 states, and as the nation continues to grow and becomes politically divided under George Washington's in, during George Washington's administration, uh, New England and Connecticut, Massachusetts in particular, are really uh, losing power. As the pie gets bigger, each piece of the pie loses more of its uh, of its power to delegate uh, and to, uh, to to make arguments in government. And New England isn't very happy about this. We've gotten involved in a second war, uh, what the Republicans argue is a second war of independence against Great Britain. And they're, they're really not happy uh, about this war at all. The Federalists, uh, you know, led by Hamilton and John Adams, uh, Alexander Hamilton and John Adams, are, are much more pro-British in their sensibilities, uh, both economically and in foreign policy, than, uh, than our, our, the Jeffersonian Republicans. And we get involved in this war, and it goes really poorly. Like, as you started out, it's perfect, is that very few people remember the Hartford Convention. And it makes sense because very few people remember the War of 1812. Uh, you ask the majority of Americans, and they couldn't even tell you who was involved in fighting the war. So when you get to the tail end of this war, it's just gone horribly. August 1814, uh, the nation's capital, Washington City, is, is every single public building is set on fire. And uh, New England is looking at this and thinking, you know, we've been losing power. We, we didn't want to be involved in this war. And now our, our security is being threatened. And we need to call a convention and get together and think about uh, how it is we can exert more power. And so, I mean, this is really the core of what the Hartford Convention is about, is trying to figure out a way how New England, which is becoming a minority in the government, can you know, reclaim some of its original power from the founding period. And Walter, to the extent that anybody uh, uh, does know anything about the War of 1812 or have dim, foggy memories uh, of their 11th grade history teacher talking about it, they may be a little bit surprised because they may be thinking, wait, I thought it had something to do with like the British taking our ships or something. Wouldn't all the ships be up here in New England? Uh, wouldn't, these, wouldn't the maritime areas of, of New England be pretty down with the War of 1812? Even before the war started, Thomas Jefferson, who was the the Antichrist, as far as New England Federalists were concerned, had put New England in a terrible economic situation because he had, he had said, we are going to stop the British and the French from stopping our ships at sea and taking American seamen, impressing them into the British Navy. He said, we will stop that. We'll simply not trade with any of them. So, He's, he closed all ports in the United States in 1808, which was cutting off the American economic nose to spite our face. New England suffered terribly from that. 
when, uh, when uh, Madison declared war in 1812, not a single Federalist voted for this war. New England had had an economic depression. People were moving out of New England, and especially Connecticut, in droves to go to these new states in the West. It was a feeling that the, the lifeblood of New England was being drained from it by a deliberate political act by the Federalists. And worst of all, the, the um, pardon me, the Jeffersonian Republican strategy for winning this war was to invade Canada. Right, so this, part of the argument here was this was really more, the argument probably would, that would have been made in this room was, this is more a war of Western expansion and, and imperialism than it is about shoring up the good thing we've got here in New England. It is a political war. It's an unconstitutional war. It's being waged in a way that makes New England the most vulnerable of all the regions. So you are, you're fighting Britain on our back doorstep. And when they decide to fight back, they're going to come attack us, and you won't even send troops to defend us. It's not surprising that what you heard in the years leading up to the co uh, convention throughout New England is talk of secession. It was, it was real talk that the New England states, to save themselves, would have to leave the Union and go off on their own. You know, uh, Richard Kay, secession uh, gets brought up a lot, but this is early on in the process. Our, con our Constitution has even gotten bigger in terms of amendments since this uh, conversation was being had in here. There are always questions about whether secession can be legal, can happen. What, what would have been, have been the state of thinking about secession at a time like this? Um, this was a period when the very nature of the Federal Union was still, still being formed. The arguments were up for grabs. Um, the, at the time, uh, there were uh, competing theories of exactly what the Constitution was. Uh, the uh, Federalists, ironically in this case, uh, thought that this was, in large measure, a consolidated union. Um, opponents, um, largely, initially Republicans, but later on uh, adopted by the Federalists uh, on this occasion, thought this is merely kind of a league, an alliance, a compact is the word that they used, and that when things got tough, um, the individual members of the league um, had the right to withdraw. Um, this, was, uh, this was not universal, it certainly was a contested position, but when one's interests began to be trampled on, uh, by the constitutional system. This is something obviously appealed to people who thought they might be better on their own. And um, Matt, my sense is the rest of the country, to a certain degree, to whatever degree the press was uh, spreading the word about this, did regard this as a borderline act of treason that this conversation was even going on. Absolutely. And, and President James Mattis at the time sends up uh, a major uh, named Jessup, to come up, and of course we have in, in Hartford Jessup's Green, and uh, he sends Jessup up to, to keep an eye and watch things that are going on. And uh, late, years later, uh, Andrew Jackson once said, you know, if I had been in command of this region, I would have gone in and I would have hanged the three principal uh, leaders of this convention immediately. So this, I think the, the really important thing about the legacy of the Hartford Convention is that the legacy is from the Republican version of the Hartford Convention. The Federalists themselves, I mean, when they have, when they go to have the convention, and I, I brought one quote that I want to read to you. Uh, the the uh, 
Calvin Goddard, who's a member of the General Assembly from uh, Connecticut, he's a delegate from Connecticut to the Hartford Convention. So he just comes uh, in, in the, own, the building that he's already uh, housed in, and he says, I am no rebel, a rebel, have no scheme of severing the Union. I should consider it an evil of no small magnitude if accomplished by a compact in the most peaceable way. So the, the Federalists who come to the Hartford Convention are really, they're not here to announce secession. But the Republicans really do a good job of twisting it. And the timing uh, of when the convention ends is so bad for the Federalists <laughs> because they are ready to march down to Washington City and, and put forth their resolutions and their proposed amendments to the Constitution, all of which would have given them more power in the governmental system. And we get the news of the Peace Treaty of Ghent, and then we get Andrew Jackson's victory at New Orleans, and every bit of wind is taken out of their sails. Yeah, they, the, the fluidity of this situation um, is indicated by what Matt said, where the defenders of a consolidated union now are the Republicans, James Madison. James Madison, of course, some years earlier was the author of uh, the Kentucky Resolution, uh, which uh, was a radical states' rights position, giving states uh, in which the states declared they had uh, the final authority to decide what the Constitution required and what it didn't require. So it all depended, uh, you know, whose ox was being gored at what particular moment. Well, yeah, I think also, you know, I mean, to Walter's point before, uh, the Federalists regarded Jefferson as the Antichrist, and I think they thought with Madison coming in, even though he was Jefferson's buddy, another Virginia guy, he's going to be different. And then he was nowhere near different enough. Uh, quite the opposite. And, you know, Walter, to that point, too, and he, you know, Matt's saying, uh, offered us that quote, but when you look at sort of the way the local press, for example, the Connecticut Current, by the way, did you know the Connecticut Current's 250 years old? Yeah. They should do something about that. They should publicize it somehow. I think it's a squandered opportunity. In this yeah, it's a shame, isn't it? It's a it? shame they really yeah. haven't made more of it. Yeah, yeah I don't know, I don't know what, the, what, what the thinking was there. But so... When you look at what they're writing, they're writing that kind of stuff about this, right? They are writing that we are vassals of Napoleon Bonaparte, that Madison has essentially sold us out to the French, he thinks they're our allies, they're going to take us over, and, I mean, it really was that kind of rhetoric. Well, they have been writing since war that this is an unconstitutional war and that the people of New England should forcibly, if necessary, resist it. There's long been a historical argument that, that Matt outlined that this convention was a, an attempt by the Federalists in control to, to get control of this secession movement and to temper it by, by bringing through this convention some resolves that would keep the Union together. But in fact, you know, I would argue that the, the proposals and the constitutional amendments they took to Washington whether Jackson had won at New Orleans, whether the Treaty of Ghent had been signed, they were dead on arrival anyway. Yeah, I agree and with that. after that, even, even they, in their final resolution, said, if, these, you know, if our demands aren't met, then we will meet again in Boston and we'll do whatever is necessary to protect our rights. And whatever is necessary, the implication was clearly <laughs> secession. Yeah. Although, it, is there, Matt, any sense in which I feel like they went in like lions and came out a little bit like lambs? In other words, you look at some of the rhetoric uh, going in, 
And then they come out and what are, the, what are their demands? Their demands have to do with the draft, right? They, it has to do with um, the, maybe one term for presidents and, and no two presidents in a row from the same state. And their demands don't seem as radical as what you'd expect yeah, when they went the, marching but, in here. But the really big ones, and this goes to my point when you know, we were, I was giving the thumbnail, is that the really big demands are that you're now going to require a two-thirds vote in Congress to declare war. You're going to... and, and uh, proposals uh, for amendments along those lines where you're increasing the amount of votes that it takes to do something in Congress, which with the dwindling, you know, you know, nature of, of New England in relation to the rest of the nation would give them more power. But I, I think that, you know, I agree with what Walt says, is that these resolutions and amendments aren't going to get picked up by the Congress. There's no way. The Republicans are too firmly in control. But the reason that they go out like a lamb so much is, in fact, because Jackson wins at New Orleans and the war ends. I mean, when the Federalists go to meet, they are meeting only a few months after, and the impetus of when they decide that they're going to meet is just following the burning of the Capitol. I mean, what worse fate can you have for a nation than to have your capital burned? And so the Federalists go into this feeling very strong and that they're going to be able to make these triumphant demands, and they, as, as I said, they just get the wind taken right out of them. It, it, it probably lacking any CNN at the time, Walt, too. I mean, this was a meandering and absent-mindedly waged war, no matter, what you, no matter how you look at it. But it's sort of weird to think that they would have gone in here with a very different idea of how the war was going to come out and then have all that change in a matter of days. Oh, it was probably hard to get a picture of things. It was the worst political timing in history. I think <laughs> the Hartford Convention just was a disaster. And the PR backlash was immediate and profound. Within months of the convention ending and the Washington debacle, there were widely circulated documents out calling Hartford the blackest of the black crows, and the Federalists were the black crows. And there was a wonderful four-canto poem, 150-page poem published, uh, that the motto at the front, it was against Hartford in the convention, but the motto on the front page says, uh, and look at the picture of Washington in the room, and I'm sure everyone knew what they were referenced. It says, woe to those who would present themselves as a Washington, but really be an Arnold, a Benedict <laughs> Arnold. Why, why was it Hartford? Why were we in Hartford? Why wasn't this in Boston or... Well, it's actually first proposed by Massachusetts, mm -hmm. and in fact, the... Did we have a better convention in Visitors Bureau at the time? Or uh, yeah, I think that was mainly it. And, and it was, you know, the, and it was, you know, the fame of the Connecticut Current. Uh, no, it, it's actually proposed by the Massachusetts legislature, and the president of the convention is in fact, uh, Theodore Dwight is in fact from Massachusetts. Uh, I, I, you know, I looked into this yesterday of why specifically do they choose Hartford, and I couldn't find an answer. Did you find one, I, Walt? I suspect it's because they wanted it to be a secret convention out of the way, <laughs> and, and they thought, hey, Connecticut, you take it. That's right. right. You, yeah. you take this hot. It, it is interesting. One of the instructions given to Major Jessup by Madison, who also just happened to send two federal regiments into Connecticut on recruiting during the convention, was that if this convention did anything to disturb the Union, Jessup was to go seize the Springfield Armory. That's right. So in Washington, they really did fear that this yeah. was a secessionist convention. Yeah. 
It was like 24. Yeah, I, I think it's really an important point because we, you know, we look at it today and we're talking about how, you know, it didn't really amount to anything in the federal. I mean, the Federalists, you, you see their demise, their immediate demise in the aftermath of this convention. But this is really, really serious stuff at this time. And, you know, as was mentioned earlier, you know, prior to this, during the Alien and Sedition Acts in the 1790s, while uh, John Adams was president, you had... Uh, Madison and Jefferson anonymously writing the Virginia and Kentucky resolutions, which also talk about basically what states' rights are about. What can a state do in relation to the federal government? And this is a question that carries through uh, the Alien and Sedition Acts, through the Hartford Convention, through the nullification crisis in South Carolina in the 1830s, right into the Civil War, where now it's not just an idea or a theory that's argued. It now comes to arms, and we have the greatest uh, struggle in our nation's history with 750,000 men who die over this essential idea, really. And we are still arguing about it today. Yes, but it does seem in that 50 years or so that people switch sides. And maybe we'll take a break here. We'll come back. Uh, maybe Richard can help us understand uh, how the sides got switched uh, on states' rights after this. Labor rounds the embattled plain in sweet cockcord rally, and in freedom's strain sing the foe's finale. Pickaxe, shovel, spade, crowbar, hoe, and barrow. Better not invade. Yankees have the marrow. All right, we're here. We're live uh, from the uppermost floors of the old state house in downtown Hartford. There are people here, so let's pretend it's 1814. Clap if you think that we're getting screwed and having to pay for this war. You can see uh, sedition is in the air. I mean, you just you, you can forty nine percent of them want to leave the state of Connecticut. <laughs> That's right. You can you can feel it. So, um, uh, Richard K. They, first of all, let me just remind you who's here: uh, Matt Warshower, uh, professor of history at Central Connecticut State University; Walter Woodward, who's our Connecticut State historian; Richard K. from the UConn School of Law. Um, so, Richard Gay, they come marching out of here, and as we were saying towards the end of the previous segment, suddenly, uh, about five decades go by, there's another conversation. This isn't really the first conversation, you know, big conversation about what would happen if somebody, if states were really unhappy with this form of government and where they are. There's another conversation that takes place uh, five decades later. So, so what's changed? I mean, it, it's clear that the sides have changed, that New Englanders are no longer in favor of possible disunion, uh, and somebody else is. How did that happen? Um, it, the holders of power change, um, and secession is the kind of a, a, a doctrine which appeals to the outs. Uh, the people who are not controlling the levers of government. Uh, the great fear uh, of, the, uh, of the southern states in the 1850s and 60s uh, is that they are being, because of the change in population, because of the way the uh, new states are being admitted, that the interests of the south is being frozen out of national consideration. They look down the road and they see nothing but more of that. So secession looks quite, uh, looks quite attractive to them. Um, it may be that the Federalists in New England in 1814 um, saw things very much the same way, even though it turns out that um, they, uh, the Northeast is going to essentially be in a position of national power and find itself uh, much more um, taken with the idea of an unbreakable union. And, and while you and Matt were saying this during the break, that th this 
disparity was did not go unnoticed. In other words, the 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 change this change in opinions, the attitudes towards states' rights, the flip-flop of New England, and specifically this Hartford Convention did not go unnoticed in the run-up to the Civil War. No, for for from the Hartford Convention forward the Hartford Convention became an icon to Southerners of Northern hypocrisy. So as the Northerners repeatedly talked about the importance of the Union and the uh, inability to secede from the Union, the classic moment for me being the Webster-Hain debate on the floor of the Senate in 1830 when Daniel Webster said one of the, you know, one of the pretty great American quotes, liberty and union, now and forever, one and inseparable. With John C. Calhoun as the presiding officer, vice president, presiding over the Senate, he had been educated at Tapping Reeves Law School. He would lead the nullification of movement in the South five years later, and he must have looked at Webster and just thought, and as John Hayne, who he was debating, said, you're all hypocrites. You people tried to secede years ago, and now you're wrapping yourself in the Union and the flag. Even though, Matt, that's not an entirely fair statement. We, I mean, we didn't try to secede years ago. No, we didn't try to secede, but the, you know, that last resolution of the, of the report, which Walt uh, identified, is uh, if you don't do what we want and pass all these resolutions and amendment, well, we're going to meet in Boston, we're going to do what's necessary. So the veiled threat of secession is there, and I think... You know, what, what Rick said when, when you asked about, you know, how do we come to grips with these changes 50 years later, I think what Rick said is exactly right, is the lever of power has changed. And what it comes down to is who's in the minority? It, and, it's, and that's what it comes down to for, you know, when we were preparing for the show and we were trading emails, we were all talking about different examples of this in our own time period. And whether you, you know, you want to talk about Darfur or you want to talk about Catalonia or uh, Scotland. And it's this, the sense of they're in this system. They're the minority. They feel they're being oppressed. What are the minority's rights? And this is at the core of a representative system of government, and it's the things that we still struggle with on, uh, on a national basis and on an international basis. There's, there's something else, I think, that's an element that's required for these kinds of controversies to come to the front, and that is the people who are on the outs must have a feeling of group identity. Mm -hmm. um, that is, you're, you don't just feel we are the minority in an undifferentiated population of citizens, but we are identifiably different in some way. Certainly, I think that was true of the South, uh, that Southerners thought they had a separate culture uh, and that they had something in common which the rest of the country didn't. Um, and I don't know as much about it as you do, well, but it, I would think that there was something to that in the New Englanders' uh, approach as well. It's really interesting, and I, I didn't think about this until you were just talking a few minutes ago, that in 1815, New England looked at the western states as a net loss. Every state that came on diminished them. But from 1820 onward, the, the Missouri Compromise, the fight is over whether the western lands are going to be free states or slave states. And so New England sees that there is, that, that in the uh, free soil, free labor ideology is their salvation. And there's a 40-year fight that does define, Southerners define themselves as pro-slave and pro-slave state, Northerners as free land and free labor. So that identity 
and that polarization is tracked on the map for 40 years, and then the war came. But I also wonder, um, Rick, whether there's a difference also in between these two, just in the, the elapsing of time and the maturation of the country. So in 1814, I mean, you know, we've basically barely got this thing out of the box, right? You know, I mean, it's, it's a, a new thing. And so for a group of people to say, well, you know what? <laughs> we don't like a lot of stuff that's going on here. We don't like the way it's developing. Ah, maybe we don't even want to be part of it. Uh, we certainly want a lot of changes if you want to keep us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it seems somehow or other, but by, by the time of the Civil War and secession, this feels like a much more radical thing. And I don't know whether it's the ripening of the Constitution or just the way things kind of settle in historically. Um, I, I, you'd think that. Um, but in this particular period of history, I don't think things ever do settle in. That is, had there been a 40, 50 year period in which there were no serious state, federal, controversies, uh, some kind of understanding might have emerged. But uh, I think as Matt described the chronology uh, when he was first speaking, there really is never an extended period where these issues aren't coming up. It is a perennially contested matter uh, of what the nature of the federal union is. And finally, of course, what really puts it in its place uh, is not so much kind of a long peaceful acquiescence, but a very violent war in which there's one clear winner and one clear loser. And so to that point, um, Matt, uh, you know, before I think Walter said this, this was effectively, maybe you said it, this was effectively the end of the Federalist Party uh, as a political movement uh, is the end of the, the, this convention, the 1814 convention in Hartford, and, and in the words of Omar Little, if you come at the king, you best not miss. And so they, <laughs> they came in here, they made a lot of noise, and the treaty got passed, and Jackson whipped the British in New Orleans, and then they sort of came out going, well, you know, never mind, not so much. But um, it's not the end of federalism as an idea, right? I mean, this is just, it's just a conversation that goes on, <laughs> as Richard is saying, under different names, and sometimes just under the name of federalism, for, forever and, and will go on forever. Well, I mean, the, the Federalist Party is already really, really in decline before the Hartford Convention comes up. And one of the reasons, there, I mean, there's a variety of reasons for it, but one of them certainly is that, that they're destroying themselves internally. Hamilton and Adams hate each other. And this causes a lot of problems and impacts the party. But uh, one of the things that makes it so easy for younger Federalists to join the Republican Party after the War of 1812 is that the Republican Party essentially embraces all of the Federalists' economic programs and their ideas of largesse in government. And so the Federalists look at it and go, well, you know, maybe we didn't win this, uh, this political partisan battle, but we certainly won the sort of economic war. Uh, and there's a lot of other things that go into that as well. But uh, one thing I would like to touch on is you had said that in, in, during the Civil War period that this idea of secession uh, seems so radical at that time. The really sort of bizarre thing is that the Southerners argued what they were doing was in fact extremely conservative, that they were not acting in a radical way, that the desire to leave the nation peacefully and do it in a, a what they believed was a very constitutional way by holding these secession conventions and saying, look, our state's rights, we have the right to break the compact. We're not going to attack you. We're not going to do anything to you, to you. Just let us leave. They argued this is extremely conservative in nature. And so that whole idea of, of extremism or radicalism versus conservative action in government and politics is something, again, that we can debate on a, a, the whole bunch of different levels. 
You know, um, Walter, uh, to Rick's point about, I keep saying to Rick's point, to people's point, I don't know, I sound like I'm Brian Lamb or something. Um, <laughs> but, you know, he was sort of saying, well, it never did settle. You know, it just, it, there was never a time in which this conversation kind of ended. It, it, there's never been a time where we took this beautiful thing out of the box and sat there and looked at it for 25 years. It, it could, you could say that, uh, except for the Civil War and the death of you know hundreds of thousands of people, it's sort of a good thing to. I mean, historically, it's to, to have these conversations, to wrestle with your angels from time to time, is a good thing and a healthy thing for the Republic to be asking those questions, as long as you don't bend it so much that it snaps the, the way it does in the, the latter. The problem, the the lesson of the Civil War is that the com when the conversation becomes so strained that the voices are completely polarized and they are talking over each other's shoulders rather than to each other, then you have a serious, you, you have a serious national problem. And today, we have a lot of people in Congress. Congress is clearly dysfunctional, and many people think the dysfunctionality comes from this polarization of parties around extremes. So I would say, if there is a lesson in the politics, it's one that needs to really, uh, really be listened to today. Because up until the election of Lincoln, not that many people thought secession could ever actually happen. But it did, and uh, it was awful. Um, Rick, uh, this, I, I would have a better command of this if I paid more attention to when Hugh McGill was talking to me, but uh, it's usually at dinner and we've had a couple of glasses of wine, and so uh, Hugh's a former dean of the UConn Law School, and from time to time he tells me why it would be less legally possible for Texas to secede now than it was legally possible for the southern states or for the New England states uh, in, uh, in 1814. Can, do, you, can, do you have an explanation to, for what well, he means? Well, it's, it's a bad example yeah. because uh, Texas actually has a certain peculiar characteristic about how it became a state as opposed to other states. Texas mm -hmm. actually became a state by treaty. Mm -hmm. But let's put that aside. Let's right. change it to Arizona. Okay, Arizona. Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> simply as matter of law, simply as a yeah. matter of law. The Constitution has changed um, uh, by the addition of those Civil War amendments, the 13th, 14th, 15th amendments. These put powerful restrictions on the state. Um, but that by itself doesn't really answer uh, the underlying problem of what's the relationship of the state to the Constitution, including those amendments. Um, that's something which can't be answered by the Constitution itself. Rather, what's changed is kind of political legal culture, um, largely driven by the outcome of the war, so that uh, plus the fact that the country has, by virtue of technology, communications has become much more closely knit together, so that the virtue and our national, our, our sectional identities, which I referred to before, have diminished. You know, everybody watches the same television, everybody hears the same content. So that the very idea of it um, is less, um, is, is less uh, seems less realistic than it did um, before. Um, uh, so I think that it, it would be harder, but I'm not sure that the legal case 
uh, is any different now than it was in 1814. Wasn't, wasn't there a case in 1866, Texas versus yes, White? Yes, yes. That, that addressed that issue and the Supreme Court said, right. oh, you, you can't leave? Okay, Texas White says this is an indestructible union of indestructible states. But, but uh, your point is that if, if you're going to leave, you don't really care what the Constitution that's says right. anyway. That's, that's an interpretation of the Constitution. Mm -hmm. but, so the question is, what's a state's relationship to the Constitution? And the Constitution can't say that by itself. The cultural argument, though, was settled in the Civil War, as Hugh McGill points out. Mm -hmm. He notes that before the Civil War, whenever you said the word United States, mm -hmm. you used a plural verb. The United States are going to do this. After the Civil War, it became the United States is. Once it becomes singular, the cultural concept of one indivisible nation seems to me to be deeply embedded yeah. in the yeah. language yeah. and in the kind of... I, I don't think there's any doubt that what, what uh, um, Walt says is correct, and that just simply as a cultural political matter, only the craziest of the crazy uh, now talk about um, secession. Uh, but, it's, uh, but it's, it's still a plausible idea looked at as a matter of kind of constitutional theory. That hasn't really moved very much. Rick um, Perry talks about secession. I was going to say the craziest of the crazy get elected to Congress. Yeah. Um, well, um, and, you know, as you were, you were uh, you know, saying that, Rick, I, I, I can't not think about a wide variety of organizations, some of them, you know, militia and patriot groups, organizations that refer to themselves as, you know, real Americans who are, who really truly believe that with the, the impasse in Congress and the fact is, I think, Walt, you described it perfectly of people who are speaking over each other's shoulders that there's absolutely no trust, there isn't a, a talk of nationalism, uh, and that th there's a huge frustration in this nation among a lot of groups, not to the extent that we feel like, you know, I think mainstream people feel like, oh, we're, we're, we're getting ready, we're going to vote ourselves out now. Uh, but there's a greater tension in this nation than I think there has been perhaps since the Civil War. Uh, we're going to take a, on that uplifting note, we're going to take a, a quick break. We are here at the old State House in downtown Hartford. I, I want to just do, do all our shows here, Mr. Jankowski. It's very nice. I feel very regal, and I guess that's not the right word, but I feel very important uh, here in this incredible high-ceilinged room up here at the top of the old State House. Uh, it, it just is a, if, if you haven't visited here in a long time, I mean, come back here and be reminded of what a great building it is, and there's uh, terrific museums around the building, and a great gift shop uh, where you can buy the collected works of Matt Warshower. Uh, and, and also, you can also get the, the, those little bicentennial paperback things for 50 cents. I just bought a whole lot of them. Uh, all right, so uh, we'll take a quick break. We'll come back. We do want to talk about how this does play out in other countries, uh, because obviously we just went through through Scotland and Catalonia, and so uh, let's talk about what Hartford says to those places after this break. I think we should secede from Metro North, the NFL, and the International House of Pancakes. Remember, this doesn't have to be rational. Today's show was produced by Katie Talarski, Betsy Kaplan, and me, Kyone Wolf. Jackie Filson is our fearless intern. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. Special thanks to Gene Amatruda back at the Mothership. The part of Bill Curry was played by John Adams. 
For articles, show pages, and photos of the Faith Middleton Show staff and Tricorn hats, visit our website, WNPR.org. And now, back to Colin. All right, we're here at the old state house in downtown Hartford. We do have people up here on the second floor or the third floor or wherever this is that we are. Uh, so, um, hey, if you're tired of paying for a military here in 1814 that isn't even here protecting us, let's hear some applause. Yeah. That was another one of their big complaints is that, you know, they had to pay for the army. The army was someplace else. Um, all right, so uh, we're, we're here because 200 years ago, uh, in December of 1814, uh, a bunch of cranky Yankees got together here to uh, complain about everything that they didn't like and demand changes and, uh, and emit veiled threats that hinted at secession. Uh, and then suddenly the war was over and they kind of walked out and said, it's just big misunderstandings. Um, so what we want to talk about here uh, towards the end here are a couple of different strains that, that come out of that. Uh, and I should say that here with us today, uh, Matt Warshower uh, is the uh, professor of history at Connecticut State University. Walter Woodward is our state historian. Richard Kay, uh, a member of the Yukon School of Law uh, and the author of The Glorious Revolution and the Continuity of Law. And speaking of continuity of law, Rick, one thing we haven't talked about is nullification, which is kind of a, another element of this, right? This is basically a state saying, ah, we don't really like this federal law. Why should we have to follow it? So, so I assume that, and, and that does pop up here in the 21st century from time yes. to time. I, I assume that is an arrow that was shot out of this building to a certain degree. Oh, I, it was a lesser included case of what people were arguing here. I mean, if, if, if one can leave the union, I suppose one can do something, uh, something a little less drastic as well. Nullification, again, was an issue which... Uh, was persistent throughout the first half of the 19th century. Again, pops up in different people's hands as the laws that they find unconstitutional uh, pinch different people. Uh, after the um, after the Civil War, again, that's pretty much pretty much eliminated. Although, as you said, there's still every once in a while, and maybe somewhat more in the last five or ten years, there's still people who think. Uh, that a state has the right to judge for itself the constitutionality of acts of the federal government, uh, and if it finds those acts unconstitutional, to essentially treat them as ineffective uh, in, in their state. We heard it you know, during the Affordable Care Act debate, um, and I presume we'll continue to hear it from, uh, from people from time to time. But again, that's, that's a, um, a tiny minority of people who think that's a plausible legal argument. The Connecticut General Assembly did it twice during the War of 1812. They explicitly claimed a right to interpose and not enforce a law and later to nullify it. And that's the a, Connecticut Assembly. That, that is something which was, which was just about explicitly endorsed by Thomas Jefferson and James Madison in the Kentucky and Virginia resolutions. Oh, we have special guest Martha Dean. Let's bring her in here now. No, she's not here. You'll have to put down the musket before you come in. Uh, but, but that came up in her... She's, she's yes. talk, she's talked about nullification, right? Well, well, she did when she was running for attorney general. Yeah. Um, uh, so, uh, and I said, perfectly good argument, you know, circa 1835. Um, but now, not so good. So, uh, Matt, you know, in a second, uh, Rick's going to talk a little bit about the Quebecois. But, I mean... As we, you, know, you, you invoked these ideas before, Catalonia, Scotland, oh, any place we, we talk about uh, secession, these things are cousins of the Hartford Convention, but I would guess that for the most part, they don't know anything about the Hartford Convention. This is just sort of one of the cycles of history that happens everywhere. 
Yeah, and I think this is going to what I had brought up before, and that is this, this question of minority rights. And it is, uh, it's one of the great questions of representative government, of, you know, is it fair that because you have 51% or 50.5%, they make the decision, what happens to uh, the rights of the 49%? And it, it's always been a struggle. Uh, in, in representative government, and it's, it's the struggle that we continue to have to this day. And, and you know, the fact that, um, it, it, look, things were much, much easier uh, for many countries when you had a dictator. Uh, it's certainly easier for the dictator. Uh, makes his decree, that's it. The people don't, they, they know that they don't have any rights, and that's that. But once people get the idea in an enlightened conception of government, they want rights and they feel put upon if what they want loses by a little bit. Um, can we just use the Quebecois as, as a laboratory here? There's some real interesting parallels, I think, uh, between um, Quebecois separatism and, and the Hartford Convention. But just to go back to something you said a lot earlier, the first thing has to be group identity. That's right. And there can't be a better example of group identity than we don't speak the same language as you. Yeah. The, uh, the phenomenon of secession tends to be identified uh, with countries where there is a real identifiable separate group. Language is certainly one element of it. It's exactly the same thing in Spain and Catalonia. Mm -hmm. There's a separate history, a separate culture. We see it in Iraq, uh, where many people doubt that the population of Iraq has sufficient coherence uh, that they will ever be able to get along uh, in one uh, in one legal political system. Um, so Quebec has, has has been a persistent problem from 1763 when Quebec was conquered by the British uh, to this moment. Although it is in a rather quiet phase at this moment, but there is a substantial number of the population who just says, "No, we are just different. We're different." That I think, and I think that was much more true in the United States in 1814 than it is now. People had different identities as to who they were. You know, when, when Thomas Jefferson said, "My country," he meant Virginia. Um, very, be very odd to find someone whose primary allegiance now is to a state. Um, but where, in fact, you are constantly reminded of the difference by speaking a different language, by having a different uh, traditions, uh, it's much more plausible. It's always going to be that way um, uh, as long as we have nation states which incorporate more than one cultural community. I think you, you, you could find it very easily uh, in Quebec as somebody who is, whose primary allegiance is to Quebec as opposed to... Yes, I, my guess is that even the Federalists in Quebec, that is, even those who don't want to leave Canada, believe may identify with Quebec first and with Canada separate. Indeed, there was, a, there was a, a opinion poll a few months ago in which they looked at young professionals in Quebec who are very down on the idea of separatism, who want to be part of Canada, but who still identify themselves uh, with Quebec first and foremost. It's better for Quebec to be part of Canada. I, I had a moment that brought this in high relief. I took a group of teachers to Quebec, and we were we were being taken around on a bus by a tour guide, and we were going to the Plains of Abraham, and it was in 2013. And I asked the tour bus driver, expecting some kind of response, well, how are you going to celebrate the anniversary of the great battle on the Plains of Abraham? When <laughs> He stopped the bus. He got up. He turned around. He said, 
you think we would celebrate a terrible defeat when a conqueror and he literally became livid and it was a it was a dramatic history lesson for the teachers of how identity can be tied not to a country as much as to a province and, or and a region. That kind of allegiance is basic is the hardest to deal with because basically it's irrational. It's not about your taxes, it's not about your voting district. It's about who you are and who they are. And it's uh, it's but the is hardest that irrational? kind of is that irrational really? Uh, they I, sure don't think so, but, uh, then, but, but it, it, maybe it's not irrational, but it's not amenable to repair. Which, which one of the things I think that saved Quebec is there were demands, and there were demands that could be met, too. In other words, you had people who were radical separatists, and then you had another movement, the way I understood it anyway, where accommodations could be made. And, you know, there, are, there, there were adjustments to signage and stuff like that. Um, if, you can, if you can find some rational basis of appeasing somebody, right. you can put the pin back in the grenade. But if it's all at the level of we're different, then we're leaving, right? right. You can never yes. fix anything. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, I don't think that is anything which can ever be fixed. Um, uh, never is a long time, but uh, in the, the near future. The Scottish referendum was very much a heart and head debate because I think the Scottish heart wanted independence, but the Scottish head realized that economically and culturally we are in fact better together, especially after... David Cameron came in and said, you can have maximum devolution. We'll give you everything you want. Stay in the union. Right. I think also the Scottish head said to the Scottish heart, really? You haven't thought any of this through? You haven't figured out anything? All right. I think we have to go. I'm getting that sign here. This has been so much fun. I want to thank Matt Warshaw, our professor of history at Central Connecticut State University, co-chair of the Connecticut Civil War Commemoration Commission, Walter Woodward, associate professor of history at UConn, uh, and the Connecticut State historian Richard Kay uh, from the UConn School of Law and the author of The Glorious Revolution and the Continuity of Law. A special thanks to Betsy Kaplan for figuring this whole, out, the whole thing out into our executive producer, Katie Tularski, who uh, loaded up our Conestogas or whatever it is that we use to get down here to this historic spot. Time to go. Thanks very much. Give yourself a big hand, City of Hartford, for being here today. I'm Kion Wolf, and I'm seceding from public radio. I am tired of the endless research, the in-depth arts and culture coverage, the honest, hard-working staff. I am going to Fox News Network. <laughs> Sorry. No, I'm not. <laughs>